0: junior women, not all surgeons, uh, medical students, nurses, um, uh, admin staff, um, are being at least sexually harassed and at the worst sexually assaulted.
1: It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown pie. To apologize for I wore my
0: good suit
1: because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper. This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman and this is Been There Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. They're not just striving, but thriving and sometimes reviving, as well as pivoting and riveting. Experienced, smart women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace no I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, stop typing please. All right, stop this week I talked to one of these women, Tamson Cummings, a consultant colorectal surgeon who specializes in anal neoplasia, otherwise known as AIN. She's part of the working party on sexual misconduct and surgery, chair of the Women in Surgery Forum, she's published hundreds of research papers and has been asked to speak at every imaginable medical conference in the world and she joins me now. Hi, Tamsin. Hello. Now, everyone is now going to be asking, I'm sure, as I as I've introduced you, what on earth is anal neoplasia?
0: So that's a great. Start and may I say, I haven't been asked to speak at every match of a
1: conference in the world, there are a lot of them. Um, it's probably but, two you haven't been asked to speak at, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of poetic
0: license in that introduction. But, um, um anal neoplasia is essentially uh, the state of uh, anal pre cancer, um, and anal cancer, much like much the better known cervical cancer, is caused by the warp virus HPV. Um, And so uh, it's got a precancerous stage, much like the cervix. uh, But unlike the cervix, we don't have a screening program. Um, But you can prevent anal cancer by finding it in its precancerous
1: stage and treating it to try and prevent anal cancer. So HPV has become very common uh, in terms of vaccinating young boys and girls in schools. Is that part of the preventative side of stuff?
0: Oh, absolutely. If we could get rid of HPV, then we won't have any of these cancers. So those vaccinations are essentially a vaccination against cancer. It'd be great if we could find a vaccination against all cancer, but um, this is the only one we can vaccinate against at the moment. So, yeah, I'm hoping that I'll be out
1: of a job by about 2080. That would be very good. And what is what is the difference between anal cancer and rectum cancer, and how common is it? So anal cancer generally is quite a rare cancer, uh, and rectal cancer
0: is much more common. So that's the one that, if you're over sixty, you get sent a uh, what they call a poo stick. So you you stick it into your poo and send it back, and then they call you in if there's any blood in it. Um, so anal cancer, although it's next door to the rectum, it's totally different because it's caused by this virus, whereas rectal cancer is not caused by a virus. Um, and we don't, although it can be found when you're having that test, that colonoscopy as a result of the, the bowel screening, it's not the main aim of bowel, screen, uh, bowel screening. So you might think, why am I bothering with such a rare cancer? Uh, well, um, there are certain groups of people, because it's a virus where um, their immune system is um affected and therefore they're not able to control the virus. Lots of us meet HPV, those of us who are too old to have been vaccinated when we were 12. Um, But our immune systems are keeping it under control and we don't get cancer. But people who've had immune system either affected um, by something like HIV uh, or because their immune system has been deliberately reduced, for example, to stop them rejecting a transplant, um, can then later on get uh, problems with
1: HPV, including cancer. Now, it strikes me this is a very interesting area for you to have chosen to specialise in. What, why did why did you choose this area in particular? Well, I I'm a colorectal
0: surgeon by trade, um, and ended up, uh, in fact, when I was still training, um, with a patient who was um, really afflicted by this disease. So had disease absolutely everywhere. Uh, so both cervix and anus and everywhere in between. Um, and she was a a, a huge conundrum uh, to the, the senior consultant I was working with at the time. Um, and it was really uh, exploring, that's the first time I came across this disease and exploring the options. I discovered this technique, which I now do called high resolution anoscopy, which is the equivalent of a colposcopy, but in the anus. And I discovered that the, the expert in it, the European, indeed world expert in it, was in the very hospital I was in. Um, so I went to see him, and then and then came back um, at a later date when I was a consultant and uh, trained in this because I just found the whole thing fascinating.
1: When you were growing up as a little girl, did you <laughs> did you lie awake at night and think <laughs> one day I'm going to specialise in Now I'm being facetious, but did you? Did you have a sort of like a calling that you you wanted to be a surgeon you wanted to help people with their health or did you have other dreams when you were a younger woman
0: Well it's hard isn't it in retrospect I mean I I was convinced I didn't but um my father told me that when I was uh when I was young I told him I wanted to be a surgeon So I don't remember saying that but apparently I did um I um I, I wanted to do to study literature, um, but ended up uh, doing medicine because my mother said I was the first one who could do science, and it was a waste to just do literature. Um, <laughs> so I've always, you know, I've always wanted. So I did a, a part of an English degree um, as part of my basic degree, and um, then ended up feeling like I was a sort of uh, undercover journalist in a medical school when I went on to to do my clinical medicine at Guys. Um, and then I just ended up having, I was really into in all of medicine when I when I studied it, but had a couple of very inspirational surgeons. Um, and surgery, I mean, it's not a surprise that there's a lot of TV and media based on surgery, because there's a certain glamour to it, which is quite attractive. Um, and I can't say that that was that the anuses were particularly glamorous at the beginning. It's just that colorectal surgery itself uh involves quite a lot of emergencies, quite a lot of um. Really working out the puzzle of what's going on when someone is really sick. So, you know, the, particularly in the days before we had really good scans available at a moment's notice, you sometimes had to open someone up to see what the problem was. Uh, and you'd get there, it'd be two o'clock in the morning, you go, ah, that's what it is. <laughs> there was a real sort of attraction to that. Um, and then since then, I suppose I did spend five years training in Brighton. Uh, and that, along with working with a, an excellent proctologist. Uh, and one one of his catches, catchphrases was, you've only got one anus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> As opposed <laughs> to two, two nostrils. Yes. Well, you
0: haven't got a spare one. So, you yes. know, anything that happens to it, that's your whole... I mean, people's lives are so wrecked if something goes wrong with their anus. Either it's sore and they can't sit on it or they're incontinent and they leak yes. and they can't leave the house because they're so ashamed. You know, the awful things... Which you know we can try and preserve or you know preserve the function people have by finding this sort of disease early and treating it.
1: Do you think the medical profession bases its perspective on the male perspective on men's health rather than women's health?
0: Well, yeah, there's a lot of um, of evidence coming out about this now, isn't there? That um, that uh, you know a rather appallingly, turns out a lot of the medical trials on drugs have have just routinely
1: excluded women because you couldn't work out when they were menstruating. Do you think women's sexual health is is less funded generally?
0: I don't know. I don't feel in a position to answer that fully. Um, I don't think I know. I think that in certain areas, uh, women's sexual health is, it's just the fact that it's so divided. So, there's um, there's quite a lot of funding and interest now in preventative medicine. So uh, there's work on ovarian cancer, you know, on gynecological cancers. But when you're looking specifically at sexual health, um, overall sexual health funding, because it's all run through local authorities, is very poor at the moment. And a lot of sexual health clinics have had uh, their funding reduced. Um, so sexual health overall... Um, uh, apart from HIV, which is sort of separately funded, um, is really struggling.
1: in this whole area of discrimination and assuming that the doctor is male, the surgeon is male, do you ever have patients? come and see you for a consultation and they're surprised that you're the one who's going to be doing the surgery? Uh,
0: so, uh, when I was younger, that was um, particularly an issue. Um, but nowadays, I sit in my clinic and it's got my name across the the top of the clinic and it's got my name on their letter. Um, and so, you know, the patient comes in and, and sees me um, and we have this complex discussion about the operation and, and, uh, and I get their consent for it, but it does still happen despite the fact I'm consultant, um, that they say, uh, Oh, and are you going to be doing the surgery? And I go, yes. And they go, Oh, you do surgery. And I'm like, yes, I'm a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> And the only time that sort of happened earlier was when, um, you know, when I was heavily pregnant and still operating. I remember one time a a man sort of, you know, I was trying to consent him for an emergency operation and he just couldn't take his eyes off my belly and was sort of tapped my belly and said, are you sure you're all right to do this, dear? And I was like, yes, you know, I'm basically it. You need this emergency operation. I am the only surgeon in the hospital who can do it. So... You either have me do it, pregnant or not, or you wait till tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not sure how much of that uh, was just meeting some unpleasant characters who would have been unpleasant to a man, or whether it was specifically because I was female. I know that uh, once when uh, I was training with some colleagues at at quite a junior level when I was in Brighton, uh, it was the first time all four of the posts had been filled by women. And one of the surgeons said, oh God, I'm never having women again. You're too much trouble. Oh, nice. But I didn't really feel... Pre- the difficulty of prejudice until I'd had a child and I was part-time and then I really felt it. And I think I looked back and thought, wow, I was leading a bit of a, you know, a, a charmed life until now. I was pretty much being treated the same as as the men in training. But I also noticed that when I was sort of young, uh, the men were quite happy to have me around. But but as I've got older and mouthier. Um, it's, you know, you're less of a sort of, uh, you know, happy thing to have on the side. It's what's difficult. What's difficult is being taken seriously as right. a woman. Yes. It's, you know, it's all right to be there like, ah, um, when you're, when you're young and you're very junior. Yes,
1: um,
0: but I, I think that has been, and I think you can see that there is essentially a glass ceiling. Uh, we've only ever had one, uh, female presidents, the Royal College Surgeons of England. Um, you look at the top of all the medical, you know, medicine is still very establishment. Look at the top of anything. They're all being run by men. Uh, yes. And even, you know, non-white ethnicities, also very hard to see represented at the top of the rural colleges, at the top of these, um, these august institutions that have been around for hundreds of years. So, you know, although... A lot of my female colleagues say, well, I've never had any prejudice. You're just like, well, actually, have you found that, though, that you're being, you know, people are being preferred over you for, for these sort of, yes, you can get to be consultant. Even that is is harder. I, think, I do think it's harder um, and that there are times when we're sort of swimming against the tide, really. Um, and if you're going with the tide, you don't really know you are. And so it's only, for example, the, the difference for me between being part-time and struggling to get a job and people say, oh, no, we don't want you, you're part-time. Or just saying, oh, we, w- we want to see your commitment. You're like, well, I have to get up, I have to manage the kids, I have to get the baby, you know, get the school lunch done, then I have to get in my car, drive. How committed do you think I am compared yes. to yeah. a, a bloke with no kids who's just wandering in um, to the job? I'm more committed.
1: Why? Why do you think hospitals don't have crèches for for consultants like yourself and you could take the children to work with you i i, can never, I try get my, that. <laughs> can never get my head around it why there aren't uh, you know facilities for for working women i, I and, and big organisations i just can't get my head around that at all
0: well um i think i think it's a very good point and i think childcare is a big issue and actually quite a political issue uh, but for me To do the hospital's credit, I worked in um, three hospitals with a creche. Uh, And the first time I thought, oh, great, I'll just, you know, I was very naive at this point, I'll just put the baby in the creche. Um, But I, you know, I had to be on the ward at seven uh, and... If I there was one time, this was when the baby was uh, about six months old, and I was in an operation that went on. you know a complication happened. I couldn't just down tools and walk out. Now the hospital shut the crash shut at 6 pm and uh, my partner wasn't there um, and so they were phoning the theater saying, what are we going to do with this baby? It's six o'clock the crash is shutting. So I had to come scrubbed. You can imagine me, mask on, hands gloved, you know, gloved and covered in blood. I had to leave the operation, talk on the phone to the nursery nurse, and say, "Yes, can you please let this theatre nurse called Anna come and pick up my baby?" Good lord! And then for the last hour of the operation, the baby was being looked after by Anna in the theatre coffee room, and then we had to go
1: round do the ward round with the baby. Good lord! I mean, it's extraordinary. <laughs> what an extraordinary story! I mean. Are, are you do you think you you've pioneered the way for other women or do you, or is there someone ahead of you that you've looked up to and thought that's the way I want to go or are you really taking the road less traveled
0: no i mean i'm following the footsteps of some you know wonderful women i mean the the the, the most famous pioneer is professor avril mansfield who who literally has just um published her memoir um and she set up the women in surgery group at the Royal College of Surgeons, which was a battle in itself back in 1991, uh, when women were 3% of, um, the consultant body of surgeons. Um, and she was the first professor, female professor of surgery, um, and is a, a wonderful, modest, you know, surgeon. Um, And so she has been uh, an inspiration. And then with her at the time um, was a surgeon called Jenny Aykroyd, also a vascular surgeon. And the first time I left when I was like, oh, this isn't working, you can't manage with the baby, I'm just going to leave. And then um, I met someone who said, you know, look, go and speak to Jenny Aykroyd um, before you leave surgery. And Jenny said, well, come and work for me. So I had to, this is another reason why I couldn't uh, to put the baby in the creche because I had to commute from London to Harlow, where she was. And I wouldn't, I've tried, but it doesn't work to do that with the baby and then put them in the creche. Um, so, and I just, she basically was just totally different working for a woman. And this is one of the reasons I'm still in surgery. Uh, and for example, she had a great, um, a theatre sister that she worked with called Steph. And um, in my second pregnancy, uh, I just kept fainting. And I was terribly embarrassed and ashamed of this, thinking I wasn't a proper surgeon because I kept fainting. But Miss Aykroyd said, look, um, Steph, can you get Tamsin a prop? And so she she had this thing, like I sort of just went under my bum and it was called Tamsin's Prop. And, um, and Sniff would come into the theatre and give me chocolate complan to drink with a straw out the side of my mask. While you were third, doing the surgery. While That's I was doing the su-
1: story. surgery. Story.
0: And you just felt sort of part of the group and looked after and that it was all normal. It was normal to be pregnant. It was okay in a way I hadn't felt before. So I thought, you know, I, and you know, Jenny Aykroyd said, look, you've got to carry on. You've got to keep up as a surgeon. So um, she sort of inspired me to
1: keep going. I I know you're writing a book or you've written a book. Is it going to be sort of like a memoir of of your stories in hospital?
0: Yeah, I wanted to write. I mean, there have been... um, Quite a few books by doctors recently. Uh, you know, it's almost a sort of saturation of the market. I think, um, but I've noticed that very few of them are by women, and particularly very few by female surgeons. Obviously, maybe there aren't that many of us, but it feels like it's it's time for a female view. On some of this and a female perspective, um, so yes, I'm. Uh, I want to write. Uh, essentially a sort of um, deconstruction of colorectal surgery and indeed anal surgery, um, but with uh, yes, memoir bits thrown in.
1: Interesting listening to you and how women are more sensitive to other women. And I, I want to ask you um, a little bit about your part of the working party on sexual misconduct in surgery. Um, how how prevalent is that? So
0: this was something you know, as as you've said, there were these there was this quite a sexist setup when I was training, and then um i was a consultant and i thought oh good you know all of that isn't happening anymore um and then in in the pandemic um i became uh, i ended up for, for complex reasons i'll go into but um but uh, doing some focus groups with um with some surgeons um and uh, on on the subject of diversity and it some of the stories i heard i was really appalled by um And I I suddenly realized, I had this moment of clarification, I realized that this sort of stuff doesn't go on in theater anymore because I'm the boss now. And actually, there are all these other theaters where this is still happening, um, where essentially junior women, not all surgeons, uh, medical students, nurses, um, uh, admin staff, um, are being at least sexually harassed and at the worst sexually assaulted Uh, by male members of the theatre team, either in the hospital or um, at conferences. And so uh, this all came to a head with um, an article that was written in the Bulletin of the College of Surgeons. And then um, over Christmas last year, not the one just gone, the one before, there was a bit of a, a Me Too moment in the surgical world. Um, because someone replied to that original article, um, a surgeon called Philippa Jackson, with her own story and was prepared to be open about it, which led to this sort of Twitter storm. Um, and and it just that that exposure to mainstream uh media and interest is what um really changed the minds of places like the Royal College of Surgeons of England and um and other bodies in that uh, instead of it being a slightly embarrassing thing that we, we're we all sort of saying, oh, well, it doesn't happen in my hospital, um, people have started saying, we've got to do something about this. Um, and uh, some colleagues of mine, uh, two uh, maxillofacial surgeons who had actually organised a, a survey but had not managed to get anyone to back it, I joined up with them with the help of the Royal College of England Um, and formed the working party and the Royal College of England and Edinburgh uh, and Glasgow, in fact, have um, backed us um, sending out the survey. And um, we are uh, looking at the results now um, and hopefully you're going to have that
1: um, published sometime in the next few months. I, I for one, ha- hadn't even considered there'd be sexual misconduct in in surgery. I mean, it, it just um, you just think, I can't get my head around it.
0: We picked on surgery because we know that it's particularly prevalent in surgery. And I wonder if it's part of that that whole glamour, you know, a bit, bit bit, like ER, you know, running down the corridor, you've got this main thing in it's middle of the night, you know, working for a few hours together, closely standing next to someone, and you're all wearing pyjamas. You know, it's kind of, um, it, it's, it brings a bit of, I think it breaks down the natural boundaries. And then- and then that leads to this position. Also, the fact that it's very hierarchical uh, and it's very
1: male dominant at the top. Do you think there has to be a change of male domination and have more women at the top to, to change the culture of all this and to encourage women to speak out?
0: Yes, in in one word, uh, how we bring that about uh I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'd be very interested to see how, um, you know, when our survey is repeated in other areas, so areas perhaps where women are dominant. Um, you know, how does that make a difference? So, for example, dentistry or um, or GP. But there still is, you know, even in some of those areas, you'll still find at the very top of the tree, it's still predominantly male. Uh, uh, and I think also we have to say this isn't just a, a men on women; it's pre- predominantly older men on younger women, but not entirely. Um, and so, it, I think the whole that whole environment. I mean, this, the the Australian College have done some work on this, been doing this for for five years, and they've got a, an intervention called Operate with Respect. And I think it's that it's that bringing about an, an attitude and a, a within the surgical environment of respect for each other.
1: Um, that's the cultural change we need to see. So what could women in medicine do to to bring about this change even quicker?
0: So I think um, using our, our natural abilities to help each other out. So one of the big problems uh, with this is it's just so hidden. It's so, you know, we had to work very hard with our survey to make it absolutely anonymous, not a single cookie on your computer, you know, because people are so... Um, so scared of speaking out they're of, they've often been threatened uh, that their whole futures are threatened you know when you've spent it's not just like any other job it's not like um uh training as a surgeon is something that sort of takes you over becomes your whole identity so you don't say you know i work in surgery you say i am a surgeon yes and true. so if someone someone takes that away from you it's sort of taking away your your entire identity and that's why i think people will uh will Put up with so much um, before they before they're prepared to uh, to risk that. So, reporting, you know, what we'd like to bring about is a way that even anonymous reports
1: could lead to some intervention. So, what would your message be to women who are told to get back in their box, and and indeed to what you were told as a young woman, you know, your trouble? uh, What what would you say to to women who are basically silenced within the profession?
0: I think now it's very it's getting increasingly hard to silence people. so I, I would say look for ways, e- even if you are unable directly to challenge the person who is silencing you, look for ways round it um, and and try to join up with other women uh, because there is strength in in numbers. And in fact, there was a recent case against a uh, a male perpetrator that was only discovered because uh, a number of his female victims had found out about each other. They then joined together and brought the case about him and have managed to stop him. Um, So I think that by by joining together, by using whatever means of uh, communication, there's so many ways to be to be in contact with other people these days. Um, but look for, your, um, uh, look for your supporters and your sisters in arms um, to try and uh, combat this kind of silencing.
1: Tamsin Cummings, I can definitely say that you've been there, done that. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to "Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well, so please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you're really
0: in love? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food
1: they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. I'm the princess. Mabel loves cooking and does it well.
0: Overweight makes an individual undesirable.
1: Lovely stockings.
0: And you think that's all that matters?